Hi, everybody. This is your host, Rizwan Chaudhry, and you are listening to the Phil Finish podcast, sponsored by Abijek, the show that shares expertise on all aspects of injectables, vaccines, and aseptic Phil Finish. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Leonard Pauser, president of uh, Pauser Consulting. And today we're talking about evolving trends in aseptic processing. So first of all, Len, it's lovely to meet you. How are you? Fantastic. yourself? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Now, um, before we start talking about aseptic processing, would you mind giving listeners a quick overview of your company and your own role? Sure. As you said, owner, president of Pauser Consulting, which have been been established for four total months now. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, prior to that, I had 10 years at uh, IPS Engineering doing consulting and design for the pharma industry. Prior to that, I had 12 years working in manufacturing operations for large pharma like GSK, Sanofi, Merck, Sharon Plow. And six years prior to that, I was in the United States Army and I exited as a captain. Currently, as part of my company, I am helping people start up aseptic facilities, equipment, and doing that globally on my own as an independent contractor and consultant. Congratulations. Good luck in the new business. So my very first question for you is, what area should the pharmaceutical industry advance the use of hydrogen peroxide use in the pharma industry? And for lay people like myself, perhaps you could explain what hydrogen peroxide is and why pharma would use it in the first place. Hydrogen peroxide can be used as hydrogen peroxide or can be used as vaporized hydrogen peroxide for disinfecting and cleaning. And in some cases, a mild sterilant. Being a true sterilant, getting it with a hydrogen peroxide is not always easiest, but it definitely is a disinfectant. And one of the great reasons people use hydrogen peroxide or have used in industry is that when it condenses, if you use vaporized hydrogen peroxide, it condenses to water. Now, water can cause problems for some devices, But in most cases, it's a harmless byproduct, where if you use some other harsh chemicals, they leave different byproducts. They don't condense as well. So people prefer to use vaporized hydrogen peroxide. An example is a filling isolator would decontaminate using vaporized hydrogen peroxide. Would that be the main area it'd be used in or are there other areas within pharma that it's also used? The history of it was it started in the fillers. Filling isolators started using vaporized hydrogen peroxide. And very, very slowly, you know, when I started my career, no one liked vaporized hydrogen peroxide because it didn't work well. Then it got really well in filling equipment. Then people started to expand it to rooms. Then they started doing entire buildings where they basically fill the room with hydrogen peroxide, vaporized hydrogen peroxide to decontaminate or disinfect the space. And now people are using it for pass-throughs or pass boxes to bring in items from a dirtier space to a clean space. It's grown slowly because everything grows very slowly in the pharma industry because of risk. Because hydrogen peroxide, even though it might be a parts per million, can affect environments. Some drug products, you need to actually reduce the hydrogen peroxide down to parts per billion from a safety perspective. From a human perspective, parts per million is acceptable, but some products. So it has grown. I mean, if you look at a 20-year career I've had in pharma, it's gone from something people didn't like to it is mainstream in, in filling isolators. But I think that it it has expanded and it's continued to expand into, as we stated, airlocks, pass boxes, because the current practices are an operator if wants to disinfect something, they're going to manually wipe something down. They're going to put their hands all over with a disinfectant that may actually have hydrogen peroxide in it. But the problem there is we all know humans are the dirtiest feature in a clean room. So what do we do? We have them use their hands, which is the dirtiest point on a human. 
Now we're using chemicals, which is great. And, th and that does reduce the bio burden or the bio material trying to remove or the particulate. I think there is a great future for hydrogen peroxide. I mean, there are companies out there that are changing it, how it's generated. Some people will do, as I said, a vaporized hydrogen peroxide. Some are using a mist where they control the particle size of the droplets. But I think it's just starting. I, I, I really think we, we can push this boundary. Now, now what slowed it down is, is all these companies have to invest in this equipment that someone may never buy. So why would a company like Franz Zeller Scan, who make isolators, invest the money? Because they see a market niche. I think for the pharma industry, use of pass-throughs where operators are wiping things down manually is, I mean, hate to say this, is from like 1950. I mean, that, that's a process from there. As we push our quality boundaries and we want to get better quality products, I think there should be some form of mandate from the agencies pushing towards pass boxes that use some kind of non-manual intervention, whether it's automated. An autoclave is a good example of something like that. But hydrogen peroxide could be used the same way. And it's also cheaper to run. Autoclaves are great at what they do. They, they use steam, but to generate the steam at 120 degrees C is a lot of energy. That's why I believe it's way to go. Because it condenses to water, it's also better for the environment, in my opinion. As a byproduct, there are other chemicals that you can vaporize. There are some gases you can use. There are still terminal sterilization using other gases, but condensing them is dangerous, expensive, and a leak from those could be fatal to humans. Hydrogen peroxide or vaporized hydrogen peroxide has less of those risks. One thing you said, though, obviously, is that the human element is actually one of the main areas of contamination. I know automation is becoming more and more incorporated within pharma. Will hydroperoxide be able to be used in association with automation? There's two questions I heard from that. One is, can the process itself be automated, which is yes, and, and it has been. All the cycles run automated today, right. as in they have measuring devices to say how much hydroperoxide went in, how much is condensed, and is it safe? The other piece is, can it be used with automation? As in, the environment is highly automated. Now will you destroy your equipment? Yeah. And it's been proven time and time again that in clean rooms, if the rooms are designed and equipment is designed right, yes, it can be safe to use and it will not hurt your automated process. And it can be fully integrated to a building's automated system. Another trend, obviously, is the use of plastics. So what do you see in terms of the use of plastics? Is it going to continue to grow within the pharma industry? It is. It's and again, this is another system I've watched for 20 years grow, but it's so slow. And, and what I mean by that is, is disposable systems using like plastic bags, plastic tubing, plastic containers. OK, you know, there, there are companies out there that are making plastic vials and syringes now. There's blow fuel seal containers which use a plastic resin, which is starting to grow. But this technology has been out. Blow fuel seal has been out 30, 40 years. Sure. And it's still just entering the aseptic arena. It's a strong candidate, similar to plastic vials. Plastic vials, if I recall correctly, I think it was three or four years ago that companies start launching plastic vials. Now, we've been using glass and had problems with glass for my entire career, which is 20 years, probably 40 or 50 years. Before that was ampules, which again is a glass container. Glass is a great product but it has some flaws. Plastics, unfortunately, plastics in the farm industry has been very slow. Like I have clients who still to this day want to go back to stainless fixed tanks and pipes, even though the whole industry is trending toward plastics. So I, I think it will expand. I think it's expanding anywhere that the product touches a system, but I think it can grow a little more as an example is a lot of people use plastic tubing, plastic bags, and then when they get to the filling line, they use a stainless steel needle 
to dose the product. And then they have to wash those needles. There are companies that make plastic needles, but I've seen a mix match of that where everything is plastic up into the needle. And then they have this one part that has to be cleaned. And that's, you know, that's a benefit of plastics is they're disposable. You throw them out when you're done. You don't have cross-contamination and you don't need equipment to specifically clean them. Whereas if you use a stainless needle, now that needle has to go to a specialty device to clean it. You have to sterilize it and bring it back in where you can get this nice package of plastics. Now, I will state that plastics cannot be used with all products. Your product has to be tested with it. But plastics are lightweight, can be more versatile. Glass has had a lot of defects that people had issues with. And a lot of it's in the forming process because they use heat to form it. If people don't know, a glass tube is about seven, eight feet long. It's actually cut into the individual sizes for the containers. So that process does sometimes leave particulate, some imperfections. Tube glassing is better than mold glass, which at the beginning of our career was still in the industry. Now it's almost completely gone. You don't see molded glass that was actually formed in molds. But I, I do see it moving that direction. Unfortunately, it's slow. You see plastic containers everywhere in the world. Medical devices actually take in plastics on quicker, but injectables, fill finish facilities are slow to move towards it. I think there's growth there too, as in what else could be disposable? Beginning in my career, if you threw away a whole system like that, everyone would say, oh, you just threw away $1,000. That's terrible. But the cost of ownership for stainless was calculated and you're actually sometimes breaking even or saving money. So I think we have to push the boundaries and say, What is better? The reason why is because if you wanted to deploy something quickly, could you actually mix plastic devices and 3D printing to make a part for a fill line, as in a stopper bowl? Stopper bowl is probably, I mean, a lot of people throw stones at me and say that's a terrible thing because they have to be tuned. But I really think people need to start looking that way. How can plastics, containers, devices, parts for the line, we're getting there slowly. I hope to see a faster growth in that. One question comes to mind, though, is, again, when we talk about plastics, though, that everyone talks about sustainability and plastics, obviously, if you talk about it, is sort of contradicting that whole sustainable angle that companies are moving towards. How would you answer that particular question? And I will answer that I am with everyone. Plastics are not great for the environment, but the glass that's used for a vaccine, there is probably no way you would ever recycle that glass most companies that use that glass incinerate it. So they double bag it, they box it, they ship it to an incinerator, even if the glass is empty, because you never want to have a cross-contamination of whatever drug was might have touched it, a vaccine, chemotherapeutic, a dangerous drug, right? Sure. So there is no recycling of the glass. If you go to a doctor's office, they put it into a Sharpie's container and it's a plastic container, right? So think about that piece. Unfortunately, Because of the risk to people and humans, we are wasting it. We are not recycling those containers today. Now, if someone comes up with a way of doing it, which is us not spending more money and fossil fuels to make it sterile or clean, I'm all for it. As in a sterilization process or a decontamination process that can remove the drug. I'm all for it. And I completely agree. But until we find that, I would rather, again, the reason why is because plastics are lighter. When I ship something, I'm costing more to ship it, which is burning more fossil fuels or whatever fuel we use. Hopefully we use an electric, but how is it generated? That's how I'd answer that question on plastics. I am not, everything should be 100% plastic. There are clients where I tell them X should be stainless because here's why. Here's the 50 great long-term reasons. 
but here's the 50 reasons why this segment of your process should be plastic. I would never run plastic pipes for a pharma facility through the whole building. Are there sections of plastic tubing? Yes. Short distances, because you can't clean plastics as you could stainless. Let's talk about modular clean rooms. Modular clean rooms have been growing, but they seem to be experiencing growing pains as they develop. So how do you see them developing in the coming years? Modular clean rooms actually have done very well in the past few years. There's some great companies out there deploying them globally. And specifically for the pandemic, they've improved. Again, I've only had a career of 20 years in pharma, but in those 20 years, the same thing. Modular came out, everybody jumped on board, and then there was a lot of issues or growing pains with them. I use an analogy anytime I talk about modular clean rooms. Modular clean rooms are fantastic for engineers in the Asian market. They're okay for the European, and they're not great for the U.S., and here's why. Different engineers globally design with less variability. A U.S. engineer is very flexible. You, you can change a design in the middle. Uh, a European engineer will get very upset if you decide to change the design, right? Asian engineers are exact. Everything will be perfect. I mean, as, as people know, the Japanese market is precision if you go to that market. The problem is, is if you change something midstream in a modular design, you've already built the pod, and now you want to change a pipe route. It's less flexible than stick built because stick built waits to the end to be built as you're going through the building and it follows the pipe. So your exactness as an engineer has to be better, which is great. It pushes engineers to be better. And it doesn't mean it can't be done. But the problem is, is in the U.S., we've come to this engineering thing where we'll wing it. We'll, we'll take an, a 70% answer. And that's kind of our cultural thing. And, and we're successful with it. That 30% we can manage. You have to be a little more exact with modular because a change, it's not as simple as telling a man in the field, oh, we'll just move it here two inches. These are being built in factories. They are exact to the drawings. There is some field work. And, and that's the benefit of them is that they're exact. They're seal tight. They're built in great facilities. The other thing is, is they're great rooms. They're great modules. They deploy quickly, but very few companies have them. And what I mean by that is, is Say you're a maintenance person and you get a hole in this traditional clean room wall. Well, you've been dealing with that for 20 years. Now I've got a hole in this wall. I've never done this before. It's an education. It doesn't mean they can't learn it. It's just a new process. So you brought a new technology in, which is fantastic. But that's where three, five, 10 years down the road, these facilities have to evolve. As in, they're going to get damaged. How do we repair them? We have to teach people how to do that. Then the next step is, hey, I want to change it because I changed a whole new product line and I want to bring it into this modular suite. What does that mean? And our engineers have to be trained too how to design for them. Again, I'm a proponent for them. I think they're great technology, but there's a learning curve. And I actually think the next evolution of them should be pre-built where you just put your equipment in. As in, there's a modular clean room just sitting in a warehouse and I buy it off the shelf. Now, people think that's crazy, but most of the high-tech filling lines have what they call an off-the-shelf version. Still takes nine months to build, but it cuts the time in half. You get less flexibility. You buy what's off the shelf, but it gets it to market quicker. And I hope clean rooms modules, some people refer to them as pods, some sure. call them truckable solutions, conixes, refer to that. I think it's the way of the future. I don't see terribly many negatives, except for the fact we have to educate people. It's a new technology. Again, this follows VHP, this follows plastics. It's a new idea and farmers are very slow to move to it. 
Well, you mentioned the pandemic just now. Uh, what industry hurdles were removed during the COVID period that may now return? Because obviously a lot of things had to change quite dramatically to speed things up and get things to market. And certain things were removed, obviously, in terms of the process. So what do you think was removed and it may come back? Some of the things we touched on was new ways of thinking. So people had 50 ways of doing business and they were stuck in them. As in, this is the way we've always done it and this is the way we must do it. Now sure. people says we don't have time for that. We have people dying. How do we react? So what was removed was bureaucracy. If you listen to Warren Buffett, who's in the finance industry, it's one of the killers of American businesses is bureaucracy. And pharma, unfortunately, has that. And what was removed was people said, listen, we just need to get things done properly with good quality standards. And we need to remove the bureaucracy. And how that was done was teams were very focused. As in, if someone was working on a COVID project, that's all they worked on. And I see this because I'm a contractor consultant. I go in and I see a poor person working on four projects at once and they're told they're all priority. When COVID came, people said, focus on one project, do it right and do it well. And oh, by the way, do it quickly. So a lot of norms changed. People were allowed to focus on one job. They were allowed to actually push the envelope on new technology. That's how I got to do some odd projects. That's how I got to do some low peel seal different plastic technologies were used because people had to think differently. And a lot of bureaucracy was cut out. And some of the bureaucracy is good and some of it is bad. Some of it is this way we've done it for 30 years. Okay, great. Does it add quality to the product? Yes or no? That's a question I always ask. If the answer is yes, keep it. If the answer is no, we just have it because we've always done it that way. That's when you should challenge it. So I saw a lot of clients do that. They challenged their ways of thinking. Uh, they asked for new ways of thinking. They asked for new technology. And they use them. I hope it continues, but I, I don't know if it will. Because if you look at how fast some of these projects deployed billing lines, they cut it, the timeline in half. And safe, good quality product. The budgets were probably increased because of the time. But I bet you if you look at the time the market would actually make up for the capital costs to get done faster. Sure. So I hope it stays. Regular, everybody thought that the regulatory was the holdup, and that's how we save time. I think the scientists at all the regulatory agencies, yes, did speed it up and had better communication, but it was the execution in the field which really got us deployed quicker. My final question really is, when can a flexible design become too flexible that it hurts the process and project? I think everyone wants 100% solution, 100% perfect, and everything that will happen in the future, we know. Where it starts to hurt the project or whatever you're doing, project, process, people, is that you get in a quagmire of so many design flexibility changes that you can't actually finish the project. The project never finishes. It's, it's a continual project because you're continually designing and you're going to execute. And again, farm industry is there for the health of people, but it's also a business. And if you can't get to the market or to your patients, having the most flexible line in the world doesn't help. The other thing is, is you're trying to predict the future. Well, Maybe this will happen and we need this option. Maybe we need this option and we need this option and we need this option. Well, the thing is, is you don't know. People don't like that in the farm industry. They don't like uncertainty. So there is going to be that 10% uncertainty where, okay, maybe we need to design ahead. The other thing is cost. If you put every option on your car, I use a car as a great example because everybody buys a car. You can get a base model car for $25,000. With options, it's fifty. It's the same thing for equipment and farm industry is, sure, I can add every option, but now I've priced my project to where my corporation doesn't want to do the project because I've added every possible option. 
And then the other thing is complexity. Again, cars are a great example. There are features on my car that I will never use. I don't even know how to use them, but there are features that I paid. It's the same thing. When you make an automation system of a piece of equipment so complex because you've added every option, the operating of it is one problem, but then the validation of it, proving that it will always repeatedly do it, makes your process so complex. Again, it takes forever to get it to market. It costs an incredible amount of money, and you may or may not use that feature. Now, I'm discussing this when you're trying to commercialize something, when you're trying to actually make a product. If you're in a lab and you're doing research and development, it's a different story because you're looking to the future. You're inventing a new item. As you scale up and get to commercialization, being too flexible will hurt you from the ways I just said. Again, I like the 90% answer, which people don't like in farm industry. They want the 100% because it means you, as long as we're making good quality product, that's the thing. This flexibility really gives you commercial flexibility or I can commercialize. I can bring a different product in. I can do this process now, but it's not about the product. It's not changing or making the product better. And thank you very much for that. We could literally talk for hours because there's loads of stuff I'd love to ask you, but I know we haven't got enough time. So all I want to say was thank you very much for sharing the information. If people want to find out more about Powers of Consulting, how can they get more information? One of the best ways is LinkedIn to Leonard Palzer, or you can do a search Powers of Consulting. Again, it's a small company. It's myself, so we don't have extravagant web pages. But as I said, I am a small business that's been networked. So luckily, I got on this podcast because I'm well-networked from uh, old, what's called old school people to people type things. But yes, LinkedIn is the best option to get a hold of me at Pals Consulting. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for taking time out to talk to me today. It's been really interesting. Uh, there you go, listeners. If you'd like to learn more, then check out Len's LinkedIn page and contact him via LinkedIn. To learn more about the Phil Finish podcast or suggest a topic, please visit philfinishpodcast.com. And there you go. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Until next time, see you soon and goodbye. Appyject is advancing fill finish technology to serve the world. We are bringing together blow fill seal and injection molding technology so that pharmaceuticals and vaccines can be fill finished in single dose pre-filled injectors at any scale. Copyright Appyject. All rights reserved. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the podcast belong solely to the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the views, thoughts, and opinions of the host, sponsor, speaker's employer, or any other organization or individual mentioned.